I mentioned before, our sermon lesson is going to be based on a reading from Philippians chapter 4. I want to invite you to open up to that now and also open up your worship guide where you can follow along therein. Let's go before our God in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Two different collisions occurred in two separate cities, each between two different cars on two separate occasions, and I got to see both of them. The first one occurred in Toronto, Ontario, where I worked over my pastoral internship. I was walking around downtown Toronto. I was walking past a hotel downtown, and I watched as a taxi car came up, dropped off a passenger, pulled out into traffic as another taxi was coming down the lane just as the light turned red. And they both slammed on their brakes, but neither did it soon enough. The one from behind came and popped it. Bam! Right from behind. And then the most incredible thing happened. The gentleman who was in the back, who actually hit the taxi in front of him, looked up over his hood, saw nothing, and sat back down. The taxi driver in the front car got out, came around, did a little quick glance, looked at the man who hit his car, gave him a thumbs up, got back in, light turned green, they drove off. No problem. Fast forward two months, same song, second verse, I'm in Watertown, Wisconsin, my hometown. I'm standing downtown running some errands, just got out of my bank, and I watched as a minivan did, you know, one of those rolling stops at a stop sign, turned onto main, coming down behind, light turned red, slammed on the brakes just as another car was coming down behind it, and bam, smacked it in the back. This time, things were different. The lady in the front got around, came out looking like this. The gentleman got out of his car, looked, and I'm telling you, there was no damage. And both cars were going about 20 miles per hour. It wasn't really that serious. But immediately, he started walking around like the sky was about to fall down. He took out his cell phone, started calling someone, and there was panic. What was the difference? Well, the difference wasn't the city's. The difference wasn't what occurred, and I would even go so far as to say the difference isn't necessarily in the reactions. The difference lies in the driver's expectations. You see, Toronto is a city of about three million. It's ranked consistently as the fifth worst trafficked city in all of North America, and it's a place where taxi drivers ride around like wild people, and they know it. And so they expect that every once in a while, they're going to bump another taxi. They're going to get a minor fender bender. But Watertown, Wisconsin, a city that is 125th the size of Toronto, that has no downtown traffic ever, People don't expect to get hit. And so when they do, there's a problem. Expectations matter. Expectations are the reason that a teacher can hand out a B-plus on an exam to one student, and he is overjoyed because he expected to get a D. And he can hand out a B-plus to another student, and that student's disappointed because they expected 
to get an A. Expectations would matter. If I, if I took you to a door and said, hey, this is going to be your hotel room for the evening, and by the way, you got upgraded to the presidential suite, and I opened the door and I showed you a room that had orange shag carpet and outdated, uh, you know, wallpaper and some gnarly bedspreads, you'd be disappointed. But if I took a prisoner to that door and I said, this is a prison cell where you're going to serve out your life sentence and open the door, they say, well, this isn't too bad. This is kind of a comfortable room. That's the first point I want us to think about today. That, that is expectations. Expectations affect our experiences. They greatly affect our experiences. And nowhere do expectations make a difference like they do expect of faith. But what is it that Christians expect for their faith life? Well, I did a little market research. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been paying attention to what my friends are posting on Facebook. I went into a couple Christian bookstores and I looked at the posters that are up there. I'm looking at the shirts, the paraphernalia, the Christian things that me and my Christian friends wear. And it seems that a lot of us expect a, a Romans 8 kind of faith life. That we know in all things, God's going to work things out for those who love him. We have kind of an Ephesians chapter, uh, excuse me, a Philippians chapter 4 faith life. You know that I can do everything through him who gives me strength. A First Timothy chapter 2 type of expectations for faith, right? Where we know that the Spirit of God didn't give me a spirit of timidity, but he gave me a spirit of power, of love, of self-discipline. Talking about a Jeremiah 29 kind of faith life where we know We know that God knows the plans that he has for us, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper us, not to harm us. Plans to give us hope and a future. A Galatians chapter 5 kind of faith life is what I expect. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. My goodness, this is what we expect, right? But let me ask you, do your expectations for what the Christian life is match with your experience? Think about your family. Think about your neighbors, your brothers and sisters here at church. Does that match their experience of what Christianity is all about? Because the reality is, although I expect those things, often what I experience is depression. What I experience is literally a pressing down of sadness because the truth is my grandmother's sick and she's not getting any better. What I experience is depression because I go to a job or I go to a school that I don't even like and the people there, they don't, they don't, really, they don't really treat me with love and kindness. What I experience is anxiety because anxiety means literally getting torn into a thousand pieces and, and sometimes I feel like the constant like cycle of life, wake up, work, run some errands, try to get in time with family and friends, and then repeat is kind of wearing me out. At the end of the day, I feel anxious about the fact that I look in the mirror and I see someone that's not smart enough, not pretty enough, not funny enough, not cool enough, and not good enough to do the things I'm supposed to do. 
what we expect for our life of Christianity, a life of, of strength, of love, of joy, of peace, of good things, working out for good people who love God. I don't often experience that. We experience depression instead of elevation, anxiousness instead of peacefulness, sadness instead of gladness, and addiction instead of liberation. Why? Why these things? Well, there are a variety of reasons that people suffer from mental health illnesses. And and there, those are reasons are, that are long to list, and, and talking about those wouldn't necessarily fit the scope of this sermon. And sometimes those reasons, they're, they're not even in someone's control. Most of the time, they're not in someone's control. But why is it that Christians' expectations for life doesn't match their experience? Well, there is a reason for that. It's a reason we often don't want to admit. It's a reason is that it's it's our fault. It's Christians' fault. It's the church's fault that our expectations don't match our experience. Can I explain that to you? Listen, in, in America right now, there are one in five adults and there are one in five adolescents between 13 and 18 that suffer from, from mental health illnesses. If you look up and down the row and count off every five people, that's how many people representative of national statistics are dealing with mental health illnesses. And that affects Americans. That affects Christians. That affects us. It affects our pocketbooks. Over $200 billion are lost every year in earnings because of mental health illnesses. But it affects more than our pocketbooks It also affects our health. Do you know what the number one reason for adults between 18 and 45 going into the hospital is? Cause of their hospitalization? The number one reason is birth. Giving birth. The number two, move. The number one reason. And for children, adolescents between 1 and 17 years old, the number one reason for hospitalization? Mood disorders. During the course of this church service, which is one hour long, Statistically speaking, seven people in our country are going to take their lives. 125 other people statistically are going to attempt to take their lives. I ask the question, why is it that our experience for Christianity doesn't match our expectations? And I said it's our fault. And what I mean by that is, despite the fact that there is a prevalence and a commonality with mental health illnesses in society, we're not talking about it. The Christian church, the one place where people are supposed to go to really experience healing, to really be able to talk about transformation, we're not talking about it. A recent LifeWay research study found that over, uh, let's see, 50% it was, just over 50% of people in Christian churches are either experiencing a mental health illness themselves or know a family member or close friend who is. And yet only 30% of pastors report to ever have spoken about mental health illness in church. And I don't know about you, in my years in this world, I haven't heard one sermon about it and I haven't ever given a sermon about it either. 
70% of churches claim that they have a plan in place and resources in place to help out people dealing with mood disorders, but less than a quarter of people who go to those churches actually know what the plan is and know where to turn for those resources. At precisely the place where people are struggling with feeling alone and feeling like they need to connect with someone that's going to help them and find healing, the church isn't saying anything. And that's why it's our fault. In 1999, the United States Surgeon General said stigma. Stigma is the number one barrier to getting to a place where our, our nation, our country, our culture provides mental health care, overcoming stigma, meaning stereotyping people in a negative way who have a mental health and yet we grow up thinking that people who are mentally ill are, are crazy or they're different or even dangerous. So we stigmatize them. And that manifests itself in something called social isolation, meaning we don't go near those people and we don't go near the topic. And then what happens? An isolated illness in a person that makes them feel isolated makes things worse. I like the way one pastor put it. This is how it affects Christians. Uh, pastor Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. He said this. He said half, maybe two-thirds of a Christian's depression is depression over depression. We are surprised. We are surprised. We are sad that we're sad. And we are upset that we are upset. We are worried that we are worried. And so we cried. It's not supposed to be like this. The problem is... Christians don't tackle life with proper expectations. Yes, yeah, so what we're going to do this month is we're going to talk about mental health issues and we're going to talk about expectations. And more than that, we're going to talk about the tools, the resources, the gospel promises that God gives us to address those things in our life. You see, healing heals. And if we don't ever reveal the hurt, and we have a God who heals. We have a God who heals through his almighty word, through his powerful gospel that comes into our hearts and to our lives and gives real transformation. Before we get, begin with that, let me just say um, one, maybe two things, all right? The first one is this. No one does what they do alone, right? Uh, that's even pastors. So the outline for this sermon series was one that my pastoral mentor and my lead pastor over my internship, he did this sermon series. He put together this outline with the help of a lot of other pastors, and he's helped me with that on top of a lot of reading and research of my own. The second thing that we need to say before we dive into this is maybe a bit obvious, but it's worth saying. I'm a pastor. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I am not trained to talk about these things from a clinical perspective or offer help or answers from that perspective. But what I am trained to do is offer a perspective that comes from God's word. I'm able to offer a spiritual perspective where God really does speak a truth into the hearts and the lives of people dealing with these illnesses that has the power to transform. And so that's what we're going to talk about. This month we're going to talk about anxiety, depression, addiction, and guilt, and the way the gospel transforms our lives in spite of those things. 
Today what we're going to do is start by talking about anxiety. Now you don't have to have a uh, um, anxiety disorder to experience anxiety. Why? Back to expectations. We all consciously or subconsciously have an expectation for how our life is supposed to go. Am I right? So if you want to know where anxiety comes from, it comes from right here. It comes from this arrow that goes out from us and we look ahead, maybe one week, one month or one year, and we see that this arrow is going in this direction. And maybe in three years it's going to take a right, but then continue on. And we have a plan, an ideal for how our life's supposed to go, right? But inevitably life happens, right? And we hit roadblocks, we hit barriers, we hit potholes. And so when we want to take a right, we're forced left. And inevitably we end up far diverted from our ideal path to what we're actually experiencing. Our expectation is a lot different than our experience. And to the degree that you see a distance between those two paths, to that degree, you experience anxiety, anxiousness, stressors in life. It's not supposed to be this way. And half of our life in prayer is spent trying to bend the will of God to refocus what's happening back onto our ideal path. God, help it be this way. Lord, I will be purposed, I will be whole if things were just different. But the truth is, God never promises us an anxiety-free life. In fact, he promises us that in this life, we will have trouble. He promises us that we are going to face stressors. We're going to face those anxiety. But what he also does is he provides. He provides tools, resources, and gospel promises to transform our hearts in the midst of that. Today we're going to call it the three tools to tackle anxiety. And we're going to call them one, planning. Two, prayer. And three, praise. And so with that, let's start our sermon this morning by reading Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Some of you are looking at me like, start our sermon this morning. I thought we just did that. Don't worry, we're starting a series. It happens. It happens. We're in Philippians chapter 4, reading at verse 4 through 7. Just a quick reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evidence to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of our God. How can we be transformed by the gospel in the midst of anxiety? Here's the first one. Here's the first tool to tackle anxiety. It is this. It is plan on it. Plan on anxiety. Plan on it happening. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he gathered around his disciples and he said this to them. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Fruit like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And he said that to them, right? And you want to know what Jesus did after that? He took the next 43 verses to describe to them 
what life is going to be like when you remain in me. He said, people are going to hate you. He said, your family members and cheering, you're going to be mourning. And he even went so far as to compare the life of a Christian to the life or the experience of a woman in childbirth. And then he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus says plainly, you are going to have problems in this life. You're going to have trouble in this life. Plan on it. Expect it. But you can also plan on this. I have overcome the world. In me, you have peace. Elsewhere in John, he says, listen, he says, this is John 10, he says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given them, talking about believers, to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you say, that's good news. Well, I can plan on facing anxiety, but I can also plan on that promise that none can snatch them out of my hand. Well, then why does First Peter, why does Peter say, whoa, watch out. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Well, it's precisely because your enemy, the devil, Satan, he knows this. He knows that he can't snatch you out of God's hands. He knows that he can't take from you your salvation. He can't write a certificate that says, I am God's daughter, I am God's son from you. And so he wages war on a front where he knows he can win. God said we're going to have enemies, right, in this world. But think about your life. How many of those enemies are physical? For the most of us, it's, it's not a lot. But how many of your enemies live right here, are of the mental, emotional kind, right? The devil knows it. He knows his enemies. He's your enemies. And he uses the tools that he has to rob you of your joy, to rob you of your happiness, to rob you of your temporal goodness and enjoyment. And he knows that if he can take those from you, if he can take away your fun, your experience of good things, well, what you might be left with, God, why'd you do this to me alone? And then you might look at God and say, God, why'd you do this to me? You might start pointing the finger at God and you might start blaming him and you might start distancing yourself from him. Until without the devil's prompting, without God's doing, all on your own, you forsake the one who has called you and made you his own. The devil knows that. And so you can plan on that. You can plan on anxiety being a tool of Satan to pull you from him, but also plan on this. Plan on that promise. Plan on that promise of God who said, none can snatch you from your hand. And be like the taxi drivers. I forgot to mention this. You know what they did besides just expecting it to happen? They put pads on their bumpers and they put pads on the hoods of their far, on their car to guard their car. And you have something much more powerful guarding you. Look at Philippians again. He said the peace of God which transcends all understanding is guarding your hearts 
and is guarding your minds in Christ Jesus. Yeah, you might not feel it. You might only feel your stress. You might only feel your anxiety. You might only feel your sorrow. You might only feel your fear. But I'm going to put this delicately. Your feelings don't matter. Because something far greater is present. You have the God whose nail-pierced hands are cradling you in his arms. You have the God who went to the ends of the world absorbing your sorrows, your tears into himself. You have Jesus who is merciful, Jesus who is kind, looking, looking, looking for you, waiting to surprise you with his joy, which is peace, which lasts. Where is God? Where is God? Where is God? That is what the devil wants you to ask. You want me to tell you where he is? He's in Jesus. He's in the word incarnate where he's always been loving you. There is your God. There is your God forgiving you. There is your God loving you. There is your God washing himself, washing yourself unto himself. There is your God feeding you with his body and his blood. And get this picture. There is your God like a warrior standing on your heart, guarding you, guarding you against all anxiety. And so why? The peace of God which transcends my understanding and your understanding, that's what's guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's just our first tool. We're calling it this, that you can plan on it. Calling it planning. Here's the next one. You can plan on you can plan on God's promises, you can plan on anxiety happening, and also you can pray about it. That sounds really insensitive. In fact, I have almost a hard time saying that. Because unfortunately, sixty percent of Christians in that Lifeway Research Project believe that actual mental health illnesses is something that can just be prayed away. But that doesn't work like that. If you have a broken arm, we pray for you, right? But we also advise that you go see a doctor. And it's the same with mental health illnesses. Praying it away doesn't mean you have a weak faith. Just like broken bones doesn't mean you have a weak faith. A mental health illness doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that you got sick. And prayer isn't just going to make that disappear. It's hard for me to say that. But pray about it. If you're feeling anxious, pray about it. Now, I said it's insensitive because some of you are sitting here going like, Pastor, I've tried that. Trust me. I have tried that prayer thing, and it's just not happening. But take a look at what Paul says. He says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. 
Listen, what he's saying is that often Christians, we just go to God and we say, God, give me this, give me that, give me this, make me feel this way. And we don't first come with thanksgiving. We don't first come with praise. And so here's what we're saying. We're saying that the first one is to plan on it. Secondly, pray about it. And finally, thirdly, praise God in it. In the midst of your anxiety, give praise to him. And you say, that's counterintuitive. That doesn't make sense. I'm trying to ask God for something. I'm trying to get something. And all it seems that he's given me is a rough time. I'm God in that. Well, listen. The Greek word for anxiety is this little word called merimnao. And it literally means in a thousand pieces. And if you think about it, that's the picture of anxiety. I feel like I'm in a thousand pieces. I feel like there's a web browser in my brain and there's literally a thousand tabs open and I can't close any of them. That's anxiety. And what God says is that when you come to me praising with prayer, I'm going to see to it that you're not in pieces, but that you have peace. But prayer doesn't work like a magic bullet where you just shoot anxiety and it poof disappears. It's not a magic wand that you just wave over every situation and it gives you peace. But here's the way prayer does work. When a Christian, when a Christian heart prays praises, what it does is focus you on the blesser and not the blessings. In other words, when you pray, giving praise to God, giving thanks to God before asking him for things, it focuses you on him with a posture that does nothing else but put your confidence, your trust, your hope in his power, in his love, and his almighty nature. When you go to God praising him before anything else, before asking him, what you are doing is recognizing and respecting the fact that this God is a God who not only holds the keys to life and death, but he is a God who can juggle the infinite possibilities and outcomes to your life better than you can. When you go to God praising him. When you go to God praising him, what you are doing is is honoring the fact that he is a loving God. That yes, Romans 8, 28 says he will work out all things for those who love him. And it might not be the way I want or the way that I like it, but he is a loving God. And I really trust that a loving God can't contradict himself and give me bad, awful things that are going to be to my spiritual and eternal demise. He's going to care for me. He's going to take care of me. And a posture of praise recognizes that. And a posture of praise Well, God's word promises that, that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. A perfect example of this comes from the book of Daniel. We just read the Old Testament story in our lesson this morning, right? Think about that story. Being in a lion's den, definitely an anxiety-inducing situation happened. Daniel do when the edict, the decree came out that this is what's going to happen. He ran panicking. Oh God, help me. Give me the answer. Tell me what to do. Save me from this. No. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went to his upstairs room where he had the windows open towards Jerusalem. Three times he got down on his knees and he prayed. 
giving thanks to God just as he had done before. And you know how the story ends, right? God shut the mouths of the lions. But here's the truth. If you just stop there, you're missing the point of the story. Because you want to know the reality? God's not always going to shut the mouths of the lions in your life. He's not going to always do it in my life, right? But what he did do is he gave Daniel peace. He gave Daniel peace to make it through a knife a night sleeping in a den of lions. And he promises to do that for us too. Listen, do you have anxiety in your life? I think collectively we can agree that we do, whether it is a clinically diagnosed disorder or not. Plan on it. Plan on it happening again. But plan on resting in God's almighty arms. Pray about it. And praise God in it. And in closing, I just want to say this. You can do one of two things when you are faced with anxiety. Either you can, well, you can talk to your heart or you can listen to your heart. You can listen to what your heart is telling you. And therein are some lies, some lies of Satan that God isn't near you. God doesn't love you. He's not with you. You can listen to your heart and you can bend your energy and your focus to try to solve it yourself or you can talk to your heart. You can speak to your heart. These promises, these gospel promises of God. There was a man who did just that. When he was growing up, he was, he was torn away from his home and, and forced to live somewhere without his family. He made a new friend and then his dad's, his friend's dad tried to kill him. During his life, during his career, he committed some crimes and the weight of guilt from those crimes crushed him. In older age, his son tried to kill him. He was a man who knew sorrow, who knew anxiety, who knew severe depression. His name was King David, and given the events of his life, the psalmist wrote this prayer. Listen what he does. This is Psalm 42. He says, I remember as I pour out my soul how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praising among the festive thongs. Why, my soul? Why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore, therefore I will remember him. Did you hear what David did? He spoke to his heart. He's talking to his soul. He says, yeah, anxiety, plan on it. But I'm going to praise my God, for he is the one who protected me. It is quite the prayer. And in the New Testament, the son of David actually had a very similar prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, our God prayed. Our God prayed before he knew that he would be literally crushed into a thousand pieces by the weight of the sin's world. He knew 
what it was like to go through, but he knew before the beginning of time this plan was in place and he planned on doing what it was about to do. Even though he prayed to God, saying, God, lift this cup from me, but he didn't pray that prayer before he first glorified God. He praised God. He praised God for his glory and for yours and he did it all for one more thing. And if I may, one more P. He was going home to prepare a place for you. A place for you and for me experience peace which transcends all understanding and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.